Please turn with me, if you would, uh, to Deuteronomy 21. would um, turn there. We'll read the entire chapter in a moment, but I want to see God in prayer first. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your holy word. You have given it uh, to reveal your righteousness, what you required of your people in the old covenant. Your character is revealed in how you restrain sin through your law. We pray you would help us to be responsive and receptive. We thank you that all these things ultimately point to Christ, the Redeemer of sinners, born for our redemption. We pray that we might see ourselves as desperate sinners needing this wonderful Savior through even this passage, we pray. Oh, Lord, deal with us graciously. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Chapter 21. Again, I remind you, this is God's holy word. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked, uh, and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to, the, to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valleys. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And the, all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man Uh, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you give them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to be your house, uh, to be your house, um, to your house. I'm sorry. She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, then both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, Then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son uh, of the unloved, who is the firstborn. 
But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your, land, defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Thus into reading God's, uh, God's word, may the Lord bless it for his glory and our spiritual benefit. As you can see that this deals with several things. Uh, many commentators have pointed out that it is at this point uh, some of the clear outlines and themes uh, basically no longer apply. You have different things being applied. But we do see in this passage three things. Kind of an application of the fifth commandment. An application of the sixth and the seventh commandment. Kind of interspersed with each other. In many ways you can see how God's commandment has its various effect and implications. And that's what we see happening here. Those three commandments being applied to very specific situations. The other thing we need to see as we look at this passage is it's in the midst of a generation, at that time, these practices were common. common. And God, through his word, moderates some of the extreme behaviors and regulates them. But over time, through redemptive history, all these things change where it becomes the kingdom of God to his people, to the various nations. We begin to understand how, in regard to marriage, how it is to be a husband and one wife, no longer polygamy. And other things, it begins to uh, purify the church and everything. But at this time, it's administered to moderate sinful behavior and to regulate it. If you remember the issues of divorce, it was because of the hardness of your heart, Jesus says. Things were tolerated at a certain point to administer his purpose at that time. And over time to change and to firmly uh, uh, to teach the truth to his people. Now with that in mind, uh, if you notice a title, I didn't know exactly what to say. I'm just dealing with the various themes here. Uh, so I, I made it murder, warfare, family, and hanging. Because that basically deals with the themes of this passage. It could be warfare or marriage, the second part here. But we'll take it as warfare because it comes from, from war. So let's look at the first one, verses 1 to 9, murder. What is the theme here? It's basically God's concern for the importance of life and the guilt incurred by sin, by this murder. He is concerned about life. Uh, this deals with uh, the sixth commandment. He's concerned about life. And the guilt that has been brought upon the land. That's what he's concerned about here. And how to deal with it. And this is a very common thing that would happen then. And it happens how we have TV shows. In which detectives try to feel out, uh, figure out who murdered whom. And we have DNA and all kinds of stuff. But they didn't have that. Here is a slain man. They find they don't know who did it. So, but there's still guilt. And innocent blood has been shed. 
And what was to be done back then? It was supposed to be actually capital punishment in, in Numbers and uh, Genesis 9, 6. And uh, there was capital punishment, death for those who have committed murder, uh, killed someone, and slain someone. But here they don't know who did it. But yet there's still guilt. There's still innocent blood shed, and yet they don't know who did it. So this is the remedy that God has given, that the closest city, the elders, uh, when they find out who's closest, they have to come and testify they didn't do it. And they broke the, the neck of this heifer, uh, not as an atonement, but uh, many would say it's almost like a proxy execution. Someone had to die, and this, this death of a heifer indicated that someone died. And they're asking the Lord to forgive. And, and the Levites were brought in. And their judgment would render. So, it, you know, a city could have actually killed someone. So they had to testify. And the Levites had to figure out, are the elders being truthful? And, and when that has happened, they can ask for forgiveness. And that was the idea. In such a way that the guilt can be covered, there still needs to be uh, a way in which justice is administered. Now, this didn't solve the problem. They don't find the killer. Maybe they will later, but at this time, they don't. But this had to be done so the blood guilt would not be upon the land. This is God's land. I want to bring out a couple points from here as we look at verses 1 to 9. One is how life is precious. God still considers His creation, His people, is precious. From the youngest to the oldest. And God views that very significantly. And there's blood guilt when murder, when killing happens. And this, this is, uh, I, I remember hearing this in South Africa uh, over the years that life is cheap in Africa. And I'm hearing it now in Russia. Life is cheap uh, in Russia. But life is cheap in America also. More and more, all these things are happening. Do you not think God sees all of this? God knows who did this. And life is precious because God has created man after his own image. And he would hold men and women responsible for this killing. And innocent blood, blood was shed. And as a result, this ritual had to be done to purge the guilt of innocent blood from them. Not only is life precious, but we find that God will hold men guilty. Though they will, no doubt the elders did not want to deal with this. That's not our concern. We don't even know who the person is. It doesn't matter. God will hold men guilty. And they will hold those cities guilty. Because of God's people. He will uh, require this exercise. Or this, this ritual to deal with it. And I remember. It, uh, whether we like it or not. We have to seek forgiveness. Because God will hold men guilty. I remember. And I've shared this before. And I won't go into details. But I remember when I first became a Christian. There was a sin I committed as an unbeliever against a teacher. And I went up to her and asked for forgiveness. And I, was, I hated doing that. I was a senior and I went up to her. She really liked me a lot in God's kindness. She had no recollection of what I'm talking about. But after I became a Christian, the sense of guilt came upon me. And I knew I had to deal with it. And, and I was able to deal with it. Because you see, even though I could say, forget about it. No, no, God remembers. And I was forgiven by her as well as by God. God doesn't overlook things. He will not by any means clear the guilty. He will deal with it either justly uh, to the judgment here or in the judgment to come or in the person of Christ in whom we find forgiveness. The other thing we learn from this passage, the importance of justice in any community in God's, among God's people in cities. She cannot wink at sin and say it doesn't matter. And that's happening in our generation. 
That there's this injustice and wickedness abounding and they don't care. And there's favoritism and all these things. God does not wink at this. Now this world is broken. It will not administer perfect justice. And each leader will be held uh, accountable before God. Church leaders uh, as well as everybody in authority. The very things that God has placed us in will be held accountable. How we use our position of authority. But also when us, as we look at this passage... Recognize the importance of having clean hands. The whole point of this is where they, they say they did not shed uh, the blood. They say in verse 7, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. And they have to wash their hands in such a way, God, oh, we're not guilty. How important it is. And on this matter that they would be exonerated because they did not, as it were, if they're being faithful, they did not commit the guilt. But why is that so important? That's required of every man that we're not guilty. Can we really say that before a holy God? There's none of us who can say this. Every one of us has to be able to say, Lord, I am innocent and not guilty. We can't say that because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a reminder of what we have to deal with before a holy God. It may not be this offense, but all the offenses you've committed, can you say, I have clean hands? You can't. How do you wipe it away? If you murder, how do you get rid of that? There will be justice. And without the gospel, we would perish in hell. And rightly so. We will lift up our hands with all the guilt that we have sinned. With our mouths, with our lives, with our hearts, and with our minds. Everything. We're polluted. Isn't it true? From there, it begins to point to the holy gospel that's been given to you and me. We only have cleansing through one person, the the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, his shedding of his blood is the only way in which our sins can be wiped away and washed away. That's the only way you could be clean. No other way. No matter what you do, you can't work it off. There's simply no way. When you've done what is right in the sight of the Lord, they, they have to do this before God. And it's teaching us how important it is that before God we can say we have clean hands. And you can't say that unless you're covered in Christ. Oh, it's the old gospel. And I trust you have looked to him, placed your faith in him, turned away from sin, says, Lord, with all my guilty hands I come. I plead nothing but Christ and his righteousness. Please forgive me. And you know what? When you do, he will. But you know what's hard for a lot of people in our generation, as it is for all of humanity, to say, I have sinned against you. We are wonderful in making excuses. No, you don't understand. If you've been where I've been, there's just simply no way. You wouldn't even condemn me. Well, I'm not condemning you. God's word is. How many people do you think on judgment day will be able to use that excuse? God, you have no idea. Actually, he does. For every excuse we have, I'm sure there's a thousand others who even have a better excuse. And yet even those are not good enough. And there's only one way those sins can be covered. It's through Christ. By repentance and faith. And faith. There, is, um, there is underneath the couch in our living room a stain. 
And it just happens providentially we had a guest who, for some reason, had hair dye and spilled it all over there. And she denied it, and it came out. She did. And I did everything I could that night to try to get rid of it. But if you remove the couch, you could still see some of the stain. Not as bad as it could have been. And so the couch is over. You, you, you don't see it because it's standing over or sitting standing over it. Now, I, I look over there from my chair sometimes, and as I see, is there some falling under the couch? I always invariably think they're still staying there. I'm not going to look under there. That stain still remains. There's only one way to get rid of it, basically. I've got to remove the carpet. Now, that's not happening immediately, but the stain remains. That's a perfect illustration of what happens to humanity. The stain of their sin remains. There's one way to get rid of it. You need new carpet. You need new self. That only happens to Christ. Christ is the only one who could renew us and forgive us and recreate us, regenerate us, make us born again. That by His Spirit He can do this. That only comes through Christ. That brings us to verses 10 to 14, warfare, or we could say this deals with uh, the idea of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, or the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, dealing with uh, marriage relationships or, or killing and war. But this, this happens to combine the two. The idea of warfare brought about this marriage in which they take a captive, a woman is taken captive. This is where God would bless uh, these, the Israelites in their victories. This wasn't the case in everywhere. If you remember that there was a land beyond the promised land in which they did this, these things could apply. But within the promised land, they had to kill everyone. And in that time, if someone saw a woman they delighted in, that they could take them in, and there was this ritual in which they had to go through this. Uh, as many of you might expect, it happens now in certain countries, in Africa, in different places, in Middle East, you hear about some of these things where they do take over land and they do take over women. Uh, this happens all the time, even in our contemporary generation. It happened back then, and they were rapacious, they were cruel, and they abused women left and right. In the midst of that, God moderates what they ought to do, what they ought to do. And He regulates how, how they ought to treat the women. And this idea in verse 13 of uh, if you look at verse 13, it says in here, And she shall take off her clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house, and lament her father and mother a full month. And verse 12, uh, uh, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. The idea, what was going on here? This was one, a sign of mourning. It says in here, most likely that they were dead. Now she's under this man who's going to embrace her and take her as his wife. But also, uh, many have uh, pointed out in which uh, she was actually, at this time, uh, saying uh, she was no longer going to be a captive, but now will become a wife, uh, no longer a slave, but a new situation. But Calvin and others have pointed out there's even perhaps a third way of looking at it. Not only that, but basically, she's no longer going to be uh, of that world anymore, but of a new world, a kind of a new creation, no longer a pagan idolater, but under the husband worshiping the God of Israel, a new person. And thus he could marry her. 
If he divorces her, he cannot sell her as a slave. It was his wife, and he has to let her go. And some say she would go on as an Israelite. Others say not necessary. It doesn't matter, but she can't be treated just as a mere object. But she should be free. So what is the main theme here? That God is concerned about how we treat our spouse. Now, it's interesting. I, I was kind of combing through Calvin's sermons on this. I think he preached three or four sermons on this passage. I'm like, I'm going to be barely able to preach one. But he preaches about three or four sermons on this, as he does in several chapters. But one of the things he points out is, from this, how important it is that you and I choose the right spouse. And it's an interesting application of this passage. And for the young ones who have not been married, it's important. You ought to only marry once. And he talks about how it is important you marry someone who can help you grow in the Lord. Not to just act upon the whims of lust. Marry only in Christ. But one of the important things I, I want us to recognize as God does this is, God is saying you are different from the rest of the world. Even in this thing that everyone else is doing, you see, they would use them as concubines for whatever purposes. And that happens, as I mentioned now, it happened back then. He said, no, you can't do that. They were not allowed to rape and pillage. And what God is teaching them, you are to be different from the rest of the world. How you treat, even in this matter, you follow my way and not the way of the world. And that's the very thing you and I ought to expect in almost every area of our life, in our work, in the way we raise our family, in the way we spend our time, our money, our gifts, and what we watch and what we do. God's ways is different, are different from our ways, from the ways of the world. And God is saying, no, you're to be different even on this matter. That is common at that time, no, to be different. But there is something else here we see. Once again, it begins to point to Christ, to the very gospel. Like this woman taken into marriage. From being an enemy to being a spouse. We find ourselves in a similar situation. This woman is to be treated kindly and received by her husband. But unlike this passage. Our Lord takes to himself sinners as his spouse. And enemies as his spouse as his church. Unlike this passage. He will not divorce her. He will always delight in her. He will not humiliate her. He will never cease to love her. He will always be faithful to her. See, it points to Christ. He died to purchase her and will keep her. He will make her more beautiful than she could ever imagine. In this passage, you could imagine the fear, the demeaning uh, aspect of what's going on, the sorrow and perhaps hopelessness since her husband, who is to treat her kindly, is a sinner who could no doubt be cruel and boorish. But we have a husband who is holy, kind, tender, who loves the unlovely. And who will transform you and me into something we can't even begin to imagine. What is fallen here is redeemed in Christ. You know, um, those of us who are old enough, we remember when Princess Diana died. 
She was essentially a commoner. We're familiar with that. And I know there's some debates about her pedigree and everything. In the end, she was more loved and liked than Prince Charles, who's now King Charles. She essentially overshadowed her husband before her death. She was the darling of the media. Americans loved her. And people really didn't like this Prince Charles. And that's what happens in earth, in relationships, in royalty, in dignitaries, and just common relationships in marriages, where one overshadows the other. But in our marriage, we'll never overshadow Christ. But his light will be upon you and me. We will love him more. We want to see him exalted. We want to see him glorified. We want to do all that we can. And he gives us from his bounty, grace upon grace. And what a wonderful, glorious marriage it is and will be forever. So here, regarding warfare, brings us to two, two episodes regarding the family. It goes back probably to the fifth commandment uh, relationship there. And this one deals in verses 15 to 17. And I just want, if there's a theme here, I would say how easily our sin can corrupt natural affections and relationships. How easily our sin can corrupt natural affections and relationships. What's going on in here? Polygamy, as you know, was very common. And as you might expect, one was loved more than the other. In this situation that was very common, God moderated and regulated the practice here. And because of the hardness of heart, God permitted these things and all that would change were to marry, to be a husband of only one wife. That, that's the focus and that's what the gospel teaches. Jesus doesn't have two wives. He has one wife. This passage exposes one of the sins that could easily come from polygamy. In preferring one wife over the other, the child also could be actually overlooked. Because he prefers that woman over the other wife. He could prefer that child, even though he is not the firstborn. And it naturally what could happen is he could just favor it such a way that the other one could be entirely neglected. It is in that context the word of God comes and directs him. Not to be overlooked and neglected. This child's right as a firstborn cannot be sidestepped. This passage addresses the rights and privileges of the firstborn. It must be maintained even if the father preferred the other son. And one of the things Calvin, again, it was very helpful where he pointed out is how sin can corrupt the natural relationship. You would think a parent would love all his children. But even there, that what could happen? It can corrupt the actual affections. That which is so natural. It is right and appropriate for parents to love all their children. But sin can corrupt even what is so natural. Parents can be cruel. They can choose one over the other in such a way as to neglect and diminish the other. God has created man this natural love for their children. And how easy even our sin can twist that. You've heard stories. I've heard stories where one parent actually explicitly states they prefer one over the other. Oh, that feels great. And that happens 
in a monogamous relationship. And how much worse in a polygamous relationship. It's a different matter uh, completely if the child forfeits his or her right because of the wicked, they're drug addict or whatever, you know, they're theft or all, all those things. That's one thing. It's a different thing. But the idea that parents deny the benefits of being their own child shows what could happen in a sinful heart. The law restrains man's sin here as well as exposes it. And that's why we have this passage. Yet this law points ultimately to the gospel once again. How in God's generous love and kindness, He adopted us all. Gave to each one of us the seal of our inheritance in Christ. We have an elder brother, the first son, the Lord Jesus. Through Him, we have all the rights that come through Him. Grace upon grace. And we inherit, we inherit everything through Him. And God treats us very graciously, all of us. And He loves all of us in Christ. We stand on His favor, on Christ's favor, never to be rejected. And on account of Christ, blessed and loved forever as His children. That is the amazing thing of the gospel. God doesn't go around, I love you more and I love Him less. He gives the same spirit to all of us. Enables us to cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit reveals in our, sheds abroad the love of God in all our hearts. That's the kind of God he is. It is interesting. Over the years I've, I've heard sad stories of men and women whose bad childhood has scarred them even to their adulthood. Some are reeling from the parents who were so harsh with them and cruel. Others have never sensed that he or she has actually been loved. And our culture coddles them as if they are permanently damaged goods. Others take their bad experience to just be justify misbehavior. There are many people who, you know what, well you don't understand what I went through, so therefore it justifies all the stupid things I do. But even there, when that happens, with sin that broken and corrupted natural relationships, can Christ change that? And absolutely He can. I've seen lives change who have gone through some of the most wicked things that you could imagine in their childhood life. And to this day, you would never know of that because God has changed them. He has forgiven them. He has saved them, adopted them, and loved them in such a way the gospel wholeness has changed their entire life. The law required this affection or this privilege. But the gospel gives it to all of us in Christ. See, that's a wonder of this gospel. It changes all of us and we become his children. That brings us to the other aspect of family in verses 18 to 21. Not only how easily our sin can corrupt natural affections and relationships, but similarly in verses 18 to 21, sin will ruin the best of relationships. This passage obviously deals with the fifth commandment of honoring father and mother. Here is a passage, the son is rebellious. The parents have sought to discipline him. We find in verse 18, they've given up. This, this man is a glutton. He's a drunkard. 
is rebellious, refuses to heed the admonition and discipline of the parents. It's not like they basically pampered him. They saw it, but yet he was rebellious. So that is the situation that the elders of the city is brought in to deal with this rebellious son, to help. Perhaps they can step in through admonition, threats, or whatever. Perhaps they could deal with him. But at the end, if he does not change, they were supposed to stone him to death. This is an evil that needed to be purged because it could infect so many. That was the idea. Now, in Roman culture, the father had absolute right over their child. He could kill them or whatever. But God's people, the parent, did not have that absolute right. It had to involve the elders of the city in which two sets of authorities would come in. And we don't have any example in which this was uh, basically applied. But the, the, the idea is simple, that they would come in and they realize this child has really, really disobeyed and dishonored the Lord it would be a last resort. The parents would not have the all authority, the ultimate, uh, the sovereign authority without the work of the elders of that city getting involved. But sin can do this. It can ruin the most natural relationship. And any and all relationship between parents and children and children and parents. Sin can ruin almost any relationship. How many relationships do you know that have been broken? That just naturally occurred, like eating butter or something. No, it just didn't. Sin caused it. It's what he said, it's what she did. Sin ruins relationship. And even the most natural one between a father and child and a, a son with his parents. Even their sin can ruin it. Oh, we love this dynamic. Well, he would have been treated better. I would blah, blah, blah. And all these things, we make excuses but what is it? It's sin. And so what does it teach us? So let us ask the Lord to moderate our hearts, our words, our gestures with one another in all our relationships. We can easily bite and devour one another. Sin can destroy families, churches, and any and all relationship, even the best of friends. May the Lord enable all of us to walk humbly, to esteem others better than ourselves, to seek the good and welfare of others and not our own interests. That he would grant us wisdom to speak a good word in season to edify and build up. Even here we see something of the gospel. We see this happening, uh, a disobedient son here. What do we have? How does this point to the gospel? We see how God sent his obedient son to die in the place of disobedient men and women and children. When we should have died, the obedient son dies in obedience to his father for us. When we have alienated ourselves from God, uh, from each other, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sin ruined the best of relationships, but the son restored the most important relationship, our relationship with our God. Through his obedient son. I've known of many, many relationships broken, crushed, and destroyed by sin. And that's what sin does. I've just, I, I, I have been astonished for families for decades how sin has ruptured the relationship. And people go to the grave in which these matters are never dealt with. But only in Christ can that be overcome.
He is the one who can reconcile Jews and Gentiles to become one. Only in Christ can the most hated enemies become close friends. And one of the interesting things that even in Palestine and Israel, the Jewish converts and Palestinian converts, Muslims, all under Christ could love each other and worship together in Israel and Palestine, usually only in Israel. He's the one that reconciles relationships. And he reconciles the best needful relationship. The one we have with God. Through his death, he made atonement for all our sins. And we have a restored relationship in him. And then it brings us to the last aspect of this passage. Now, one of the things that... um, in homiletics, uh, theories of preaching and how to preach and everything. You, you'll read these things where uh, many of them will exhort preachers to just focus on one theme. And I understand that. It's actually, I would love to do that, just highlight one thing. It would be much easier. And just say, well, you know, we can't deal with all of that. I, I would Actually, that would have been much easier. But I, I felt duty-bound to, uh, at least for now, go to uh, the various passages and try to apply it because uh, all of God's Word is edifying and profitable. And that's why we're going through this. And now we come to verses 22 and 23, just hanging. And I, if there's a theme again from this, I would say God is just but not vindictive. He's just but not vindictive in verses 22 and 23. Well, what's going on here? Someone committed some crime in which the person could be punished by death. Notice it says in here, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree. This is the premise, the issue. And one of the things that we need to really glean from this passage is a simple truth, that capital punishment is a biblical idea. It started from a genesis. That those who commit murder, they ought to be put to death. And that was to be applied. It was a uh, crime punishable by death. And for that reason, he could be hung on a tree. Oftentimes, they were stoned. Once a person was hung, he needed to be buried. And as a result, they couldn't go through the night. So they had to bring him down. The curse on the man had been rendered. He's dead. Now, Matthew Henry has an interesting explanation. I think it applies. He says, by the law of Moses, the touch of a dead body was defiling. Therefore, dead bodies must not be left hanging, as that would defile the land. That seems to apply. Often the bodies were hung at that time to bring shame and humiliation on that family, on that city, on that tribe, on that nation. You see that happening. You read in Greek literature, you see it in Old Testament. It's a way of humiliating and shaming. They did this against their enemies. But God says this is how to deal with the matter. The curse has been rendered. Don't let the body continue on since it has accomplished its purpose. God has justly accepted the death. He is not vindictive. It served his purpose. His justice has been meted out. Now, interestingly, as many of you know, immediately, Paul cites this very passage in Galatians 3.13. And Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. When God had rendered his judgment on Christ for our sins, Christ bore in himself the curse. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. We deserve the curse for all our offenses, but Christ hung on a tree was to be viewed as one curse because God poured upon him his holy wrath. And the curses that we deserve, the death, the sin and misery, the suffering. And as a result, we receive from him blessing upon blessing. We are the ones deserving of this death by the crime of rebellion against God. Rather than facing it in our own person, Christ took our place. As believers, we should never be cursed but blessed because he bore our curse. You see, everyone will be cursed, either in the person of Christ or yourself, and you'll be judged forever. And it's a gift. And it's a gift that is spat upon, rejected, laughed at, and demeaned. But it's a gift for you and me. Brothers, that's why we don't have to fear death. You and I have many things for which we are ashamed before we die. And we try to keep short accounts before the Lord. And our conscience might uh, assault us just before we die. But be assured if Christ has died for you, you shall live. And the curse has been rendered on him that you might receive a blessing. But be assured if you do not know Christ... You have not come under him. No matter what you say, that curse will be upon you. You will die as the beginning of that curse. And you will face it forever and ever. The only way to escape it is to flee to Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's word and its exposition. May the Lord bless it. Let's pray. The gracious God, we give you thanks for your holy word. There are so many things addressed. It shows how many ways uh, humanity can fall into sin. How your word comes to moderate and regulate our behavior. And we thank you that the law is not only given, but the gospel comes. And by the power of the Spirit, we die into sin. We're enabled to live unto righteousness by the power of the resurrected Lord. And we pray that would become evident in our lives and all that we do. But our sins are exposed, O oh Lord. We confess them. We are sinful. We have sinned, but we glory in our Lord who has died in behalf of sinners. That he who knew, knew no sin became sin for us. And how we're reconciled in him, and for that we give you thanks. We pray for friends, people in this room. These are words to them. They know not its power. Father, convict them of their sin. Convict them of their sin and misery. And bring them to an end of themselves that they might flee to Christ. And find in him life and blessing and forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. That will be the hymn 432. 432.